following message from Pastor Kit Johnson comes to you from Life Point Baptist Church in Apple Valley, California, where we pray that God's Word is a real blessing to you. Romans chapter 12. It's Romans chapter 12. Our text today is verses 14 through 16. And uh, we'll read that here in a moment. But before we, we read the text, uh, several years ago, I had the privilege of uh, teaching a block course at a little Christian college on the Caribbean island of St. Vincent. And uh, it was an incredible experience. I had uh, never been to a place like that before. And uh, I really enjoyed the students I had. They were uh, wonderful, godly young people training for ministry. And, and the school was in one of the most beautiful places I have ever been in my life. It was right on this beach on a Caribbean island, and so you can imagine already, uh, just incredible views. Uh, the school had their own little cove uh, that, that you could go down to, a beautiful beach and beautiful water, just a, an incredible place to visit. Um, but, but on the other hand, I felt completely out of place there on this island. Um, St. Vincent's a, it's a volcanic island, so it's very mountainous, very rugged terrain. And I remember the, you know, the guy comes and picks me up from the airport, and we're driving over to the school, and, and there are the, the sharp, sharp blind switchbacks everywhere. But they would just fly around these switchbacks based on these mirrors. They'd have mirrors mounted at the end of the switchback, and they'd just look at the mirror and see no one's coming, and just shoom, you know, right around these corners. Like, man, that's scary stuff. And uh, the people were very poor as well. And uh, it was, it was eye-opening to, to just see the way the students lived, uh, to experience the, the housing situation they had, to eat their food, and, and all those sorts of things. And, and as well, the, 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 their national history, their, their national history is, is built on the slave trade and the brutality to, to the people there. I mean, they're all, you know, all people that were brought over from Africa to work as slaves, and so... And so that is a, a major force in their culture there. And so uh, you could feel at times the, just the, the, the animosity, you could say, towards, towards white people and, and things of that nature. So, so I had a great time. And, and I enjoyed my students. I enjoyed the church that I got to visit. But I felt very out of place. I was in a different world. I was surrounded by people with a different worldview, very different customs, in a very different way of life than, than what I knew. And similarly, Christians oftentimes feel out of place. E even in our, our own communities, even in our own backyard. Uh, just last Saturday, I, I, I took Isaac to his little league party to end the, school, the, uh, to end the season, and, and I sat with these two dads, and, and we had really good conversation. I enjoyed getting to know these two guys. But, but, but as they were talking about driving 110 miles an hour through Los Angeles and partying and all the other aspects of their life, it was apparent to me time and time again that they live in a very different world than I do, even though we live just a couple of miles apart. And there are a lot of reasons why we as Christians feel out of place but today's passage highlights three radically different assumptions that we have as Christians about how we are going to treat people. And they, and they come from, and they create a, a, different, a radically different world, hopefully here in the church, from what we see out there in the world at large. Romans chapter 12, verse 14 says, Bless those 
who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. So God here calls you to embrace an otherworldly grace and humility. In fact, it's so otherworldly that, that you might look at these verses and think that what God is calling to you to is impossible. And it is, apart from the grace of God. But by the grace of God, you can imitate what God is saying in these verses. And so my, my central challenge today is to treat everyone with otherworldly grace and humility. Treat everyone with otherworldly grace and humility. And Paul gets there with three practical commands. And the first command he gives us in verse 14 is to bless your enemies. Bless your enemies. So again, verse 14 says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Now that verse is based on instructions that Jesus gave to us in Matthew chapter 5. So keep your finger here, but turn back to Matthew 5, because really this verse is just a, a summary of a very important piece of instruction that Jesus gives in the Sermon on the Mount. So, so Matthew chapter 5, and I want to read verses 43 through 48. Matthew 5, verse 43. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he who causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the right, for he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore you are to be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now folks, when you really think about what Jesus is saying here, this is an incredible otherworldly command, especially when you consider that, that both Jesus and Paul knew very well what it is to have enemies and what it is to be persecuted. You know, so Jesus, from, from the moment he began his public ministry, he had people who were out to kill him, not just to, to get him to ignore him, but to kill him. And Paul, by the time he wrote Romans, had endured cruel hatred. He had, he had escaped several plots to kill him. He'd been beaten, imprisoned, and faced several violent mobs. So, so when Jesus says to love your enemies, and Paul says to bless those who persecute you, they're not just talking in theory, they are talking about real life experience. And I urge you to remember that when you're tempted here in a moment to say, well, Pastor Kid, I can't do this because the, the, the enemy in my life is just too cruel for me to obey this command. No, Jesus and Paul know exactly what it is like. And they are still calling you to do what our text commands. But, but why? why? Why would God expect you 
to bless your enemies, to love people who are evil. What we'll notice that Jesus offers two reasons. First of all, He tells us in verse 45 that God is generous to His enemies. He says there that that He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Now, that's a fascinating verse. First of all, it's fascinating because, because it tells us that God is the direct cause of every blessing we enjoy. So, so when the sun comes up in the morning, you, you probably don't think of that as, as some sort of, of, of act of God. You know, we tend to think that the rising of the sun and just the, the weather, those are just natural processes that, that just take place naturally. But that's not how Jesus saw the world. And Jesus saw the rising of the sun as a work of God. And He saw every part of the weather as a work of God as well. So when the sun rises over an evil, rebellious city, or an evil, rebellious nation, Jesus says that that is God graciously giving them sunshine for the day. And it's the same with the rain. Every drop of rain that falls on an evil farmer's field, or or that is is used to, to prosper an evil nation or an evil community, That's not just chance. That is God being gracious to those people. And and think about the fact that that God, the Bible says that God is angry at the wicked every day. So it's not like God just has ambivalent feelings towards these people. He is angry at them. His wrath stands over them like a bursting dam. And yet the Bible says that every day, God is generous to the most evil people. And that's significant because I've heard a lot of Christians say, well, I can't. I can't love my enemy. Or you don't understand what he did to me. I have a right to be angry. But God says, every day, he is generous to the objects of his eternal wrath. And he demands that you imitate His generosity. So so don't make excuses about how what someone did is so bad that that you're the exception to the text. Go higher. Be like Jesus. Obey the Lord. And then the second reason Jesus gives is that you belong to your heavenly Father. Again, He says in verse 46, if you love those who reward you, or if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, Jesus is very blunt, isn't he? I mean, your favorite politician, your, your favorite TV personality or, or commentator does not set the standard for your behavior. Just because you're you're doing better than the guys down the street or something like that does not mean that you are living up to God's standard. And God is clear here that that we are not free to sink to the level of of, of all the mess around us. No, the only standard that matters when, when it comes to how you treat people is what Jesus did. And what Jesus demands, you are to be like your Father in heaven who is perfect. So raise the bar. Raise the bar. 
Now, now I know that, that it is hard to let go of deep hurt and real cruelty. But by the grace of God, you can. So, so don't make excuses about why you have a right to be bitter about this situation or, that, or against that, this person. Why, why you have a right to withhold forgiveness or to be a jerk. No, Jesus says, choose grace. There's nothing admirable about loving, your, loving those who are easy to love. Grace comes out when you love people who are evil. And specifically, our text commands you, do not curse. That's what Paul says back in Romans chapter 12. He says, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Now, I've spent a lot of time the last few years uh, studying through the Psalms, and so when I read that verse, my, my immediate thought was, how in the world do you reconcile that statement, do not curse, with, with a prayer such as we see in Psalm 109? So this is David praying, and David's praying about one of his enemies, and he says, let his children be fatherless, and his wife a widow. Let his children wander about and beg, and let them seek sustenance far from their ruined homes. Let there be none to extend loving kindness to him, nor any to be gracious to his fatherless children. Let his posterity be cut off in a following generation. Let their name be blotted out. Now that's almost, I mean, that is shocking to us, right? Like, we don't talk like that very often. Maybe never. So, is David wrong? Is that an expression of bitterness? You know, something that some people might say is, well, well, the God of the Old Testament is harsh. Well, the God of the New Testament is kind. So, so we don't serve the same God that David did. Should, and to get really practical, should we pray a prayer like this against Hamas? Should we pray a prayer like this against uh, people who are profiting off of abortion and making a killing by, on the, on the, by killing children? Now, what about a cruel co-worker? Would it ever be appropriate to say something like that? Or, or is Paul commanding you to reject David's example and, and never do anything like this at all? Well, well, first and foremost, God has not and will never change. God is always the same. And, so, and, and Jesus and, and Paul's commands are both deeply rooted in the Old Testament. This is not something new. So, so for example, here's a couple examples. Uh, Verses, Exodus 23, verses 4 and 5 say that if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall surely bring it back to him again. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying under its burden and you would refrain from helping it, you shall surely help him with it. And then Proverbs chapter 25, verse 21 says, if your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. So I want to be very clear that that Jesus and Paul are not saying something brand new. That that God has always taught that we are to be kind to all people. And so so Romans 12 verse 14 cannot be contradicting Psalm 109. No, rather, I think where, where we reconcile these is we have to understand that our God is both a lover of justice and a lover of grace. And he can have the same desires for the same person at the same time. That's hard for us. 
But we have to learn to do both. So, rebellion should anger you. Evil should make you angry in a righteous sort of way. And so you should pray that God would bring justice and eradicate evil. It would be fully appropriate for you to go home and to pray that God would judge the evil people of Hamas who are murdering people. It would be right to pray the same prayer for any genocidal leader. It is appropriate to pray that God would judge the politician who is profiting on the death of of infants. Those are absolutely appropriate things to pray as, as long as we are praying for the justice of God, for righteousness to be served, and for God to be glorified in the process. So I want to be clear about that. But, but Romans 12.14 also forbids cursing. And I think we, we can assume that that is based on bitterness, resentment, fear, anxiety, or any other sinful desire. So for example, election season is already heating up. And, and, and the political rhetoric is just going to get louder and louder for the next you know, 11 months or so. And, and most of that political rhetoric, it has nothing to do with passion for the justice of God. No. It's all bitter rage based on godless fear and a lust for power. And, and that rage dominates how unbelievers regularly interact with each other. If someone hurts you, the world says get angry, get bitter, demand your pound of flesh. But God is telling you in in, in our text to live differently. Do not get swept up in that sort of rage. Drive bitterness, malice, anxiety, all of those things out of your heart. Never curse out of a vengeful desire for, for, for out of bitterness and anger and wrath. No, instead of cursing, Jesus, or excuse me, Paul commands you to bless your enemies. Bless your enemies. That means to desire their well-being. You, you should be a lover of grace. And, and Jesus set the ultimate example here. So, so consider, you know, consider all that Jesus endured during his public ministry. And then consider all that He endured in the hours leading up to His crucifixion. And yet, as Jesus hung on the cross, He said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. That's incredible, right? And then Paul, Paul reflecting on his own uh, trial, trial for his life, says in 2 Timothy 4, at my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. And and, and so both men, uh, again, are not just talking in theory. They are talking out of real experience. And and you need to show the same grace. Now, now I understand. I understand that it hurts when when people attack you. It hurts when, when someone slanders you behind your back or seeks your harm. There's people in this room that, that you suffered as a child under an abusive parent. There's others who, who lived with an abusive spouse. You know, trauma is everywhere. But understand that bitterness and malice are always sinful. And they never satisfy. 
They, they never satisfy. So, so determine to imitate God's grace. Now, I understand you might not feel like it. There might be no natural impulse in your heart to do that. But, but by the grace of God, you can do it. And so just choose Christ-like forgiveness. Choose it. And then seek that person's good. You know, God says, bless those who persecute you. So, so pray for their salvation. You know, if there's someone who has hurt you, you should be praying that God would work in their life and transform their soul. By the way, you could do those at the same time. Or you could do Psalm 109 and Romans 12, 14 at the same time. You can pray for a politician that God would judge him and remove him from office. And you can also pray that God would save him. You can love justice and love grace at the same time. So seek that person's good. Pray for their well-being. Speak the kind word that is so hard to get off your tongue. Drive over to that person's house and do something generous, something caring. Now, now you might say, Pastor, I can't do that. I can't do that. I mean, you don't understand how this person has hurt me. And, and you're right. You can't do this in your own strength. But if you are a Christian, you are a new creature in Christ. And God always gives you the grace to do what He demands. So run to Him. Ask for help. Meditate on the love of God because, and what God has forgiven you. And as well say, you know, lean on the church for help. Because Pastor Tim, me, plenty of other people in this church would, would love to come alongside you. Help you work through the hurt and the trauma that you have endured. And help you by the grace of God forgive and be a blessing. So, so the first challenge of our text today is, is to bless your enemies. Don't live like the world around you. Treat other people with an otherworldly grace and humility. And then the second challenge is to share in people's lives. Share in people's lives. So, so verse 15 then goes on to say, Rejoice with those who rejoice, and weep with those who weep. Now, now God here, this is a simple verse. It's a simple verse. But, but God is, is once again calling you to an otherworldly grace and humility. And, and this passage, this verse, I believe is built off of several challenges that we looked at last week. So verse 9 commands you to, to love without hypocrisy. Verse 10 says, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. And I love verse 13. Verse 13 says, contributing or sharing in the needs of the saints. Now that's otherworldly. That's not how most people live. But, but without that kind of genuine, sincere love, you, you will never be able to truly obey verse 15. Because God is calling you to love your brothers and sisters in Christ and, and, and the most basic level, what verse 15 is commanding you to do is to love your brothers and sisters in Christ so deeply that their joys become yours and their sorrows become yours as well. Like, like you share that with them the same way that they do. Now that's not natural. But, but it is very possible through the grace of God. So, so first of all, God commands you 
to rejoice with those who rejoice. Now, at first you might think, well, that one's easy. And who doesn't love to be happy with someone else? But there's a couple of big threats to us obeying this verse. And the first is self-absorption. Self-absorption. The truth is, is that many Christians, we, we cram our lives so full of stuff that, that we don't have any room or any attention left to truly rejoice with other people. And, and so, you know, a lot of Christians, we, we're so busy, we're so wrapped up in our own little world that, that we don't notice people's joys. Or if we do notice them, we don't have the capacity, or at least we don't think we have the capacity, to truly rejoice. So, simple question here. Do you know what is happening in the lives of your brothers and sisters in Christ in the church? Do you know that the good things that God is doing? Are you careful to ask thoughtful questions? And if you hear about some blessing or you hear about some sorrow, you, you, follow, you pray about it, you follow up, you continue to care. Or are you just so consumed with your life, your problems, your issues, that you don't even notice what's happening or, or care about what's happening in other people's lives? So, so we have to be careful about the threat of self-absorption. And then the other big threat is envy. Envy. Yeah, we, we say sometimes, who doesn't love to go to a wedding? And the answer is someone who really wants to be married and is not. It's painful to go to a wedding in that instance. You know, this verse really became powerful and impactful to, to Heidi and I when we were struggling with infertility for a number of years. You know, it seemed like every Sunday, we, we wanted a child so badly, it seemed like every Sunday we'd show up at church and another couple would announce that they're having a baby. And, and, and you, you know that you're supposed to rejoice with them. But, but your heart is just pulled so strongly towards envy and jealousy because we want that for ourselves. But understand that envy is a dark, selfish sin. You know, for example, let's suppose that, that next Sunday one of your friends shows up at church with a brand new vehicle. And they want to tell you all about their new car and the great deal that they got and show you all the cool features of that car. And instead of rejoicing with them, all that you're doing in your heart is griping about the piece of junk that you have. Like, why do they get that? And I get this over here. Now, I work hard. Why can't I have what he has? And folks, we, we do that sort of thing all the time. And it is so selfish. It is so evil. So unloving. And so, so how can we intentionally choose rejoicing instead of self-absorption and envy? Well, well, first of all, just very simply, you have to choose to love. Choose to love. You know, sometimes it, it almost hurts to rejoice with someone. But make the choice anyway. You know, hold your friend's baby that you wish was yours. Go to the wedding and have a great time. Rejoice with your friend. You know, say, I'm happy for you. Even if you don't feel happy for them on the inside. Because, because it's not hypocritical to choose what you know is right because you want to please the Lord and love well, even though you don't feel it inside. And as you consistently make those choices, you choose to rejoice, you choose to love, God will give you the grace to do it. 
You know, and folks, this is so vital to our life as a church. You know, because, because, I mean, one of the best ways that you can love people and build relationship is, is to join them in their joys. You know, just think about when you graduated high school and, and, and you're so excited to graduate high school, people show up at your graduation party and they're happy for you. You know, they're 50 years old and, I mean, graduating high school, by the time you're 50, graduating high school is kind of like whoop-de-doo, you know, it's not that big of a deal at that point. But, but they're happy for you and it means a lot. You know, or you show up, you and your young girls, you got engaged, you show up with your, your wedding or your, your engagement ring and, and, and people are excited with you, it means so much. You have your first baby and you show up at church with your baby and people are happy with you. I mean, they, they are loving you and it means everything. So, so just the simple act of rejoicing with people in their joys is a massive way that we show love and that we build relationship. So do that. Choose to love people and push yourself to, to love them well because as you do that, God will build that love in your heart. So, so choose to love. And then a second solution is to just give yourself space to love well. You know, don't cram your life so full of so much stuff that you don't have room to rejoice with people. Or, or just make it a priority. Like, like if something has to go, taking time to rejoice with people is not one of the things that's going to go. Let's get really specific here. I, I would challenge all of the ladies of our church that, that, that your aim is to never miss a church shower. You never miss a church shower. You know, because, because there are few greater opportunities. And whether, whether you know the girl well or not, whether, you've got, whether you can buy a $100 gift or not, I mean, think about the fact that this, this sister in Christ is, is facing one of the happiest moments in her life. And you can come and rejoice with her. I mean, what a great opportunity to show love. So don't miss those opportunities. You know, I mean, it might be that you're, you're headed to the fifth birthday party in the last month. But go and be excited with, with some family that their kid is having a birthday. Rejoice with people. When someone gets baptized, get excited with them that, what, what God's doing in their life. You know, love people's kids. Because when you love people's kids, you're loving them. Yeah, I mean, those things are so simple, aren't they? And yet again, so often we are just so in our own world, so wrapped up in ourselves that, that we miss those opportunities. And of course, you've got to bathe every step in grace. As basic as it may seem, I mean, if you're going to do this, if you're going to rejoice with those who rejoice and really do it well, then it requires otherworldly love that comes from God. And praise God that He can form that love in you. And you can love people to the extent that, that their joys become yours. And praise God that we can live in a community that does that. And isn't it a gift to, you know, when you have some great joy, to, to come into church, to be with people who love you, and, and for them to share in that joy, that is wonderful. It's a great gift. So rejoice with those who rejoice. And then the next command he gives in verse 15 is to weep with those who weep. Now once again, 
And it's important to say here that when he talks about weeping with those who weep, he's, he's not just talking about just a token expression of sorrow or a passing comment or a passing thought. No, we, we talked last week about, in verse 13, it talks about sharing in the needs of the saints. And it really means that, that we get under the load with them. And so the idea here is that when someone is sorrowing, that, that their sorrow becomes yours. You join them in the pain. You, you help bear the burden of their loss. Now, now once again, we, we Americans, we, we don't have the space or the capacity sometimes, or at least we don't think we have the space or capacity to do that well. And, and frankly, you know, we are so obsessed as a culture with looking good and feeling good that, that we do everything we can to avoid something like grief. We, we try and get rid of it as quick as we can. We, we try and you know, clean up you know, death and, and things of that nature as best as we can. Avoid it. Don't think about it. But the truth is, is that there are people all over this room who can't avoid sorrow. You know, they're, they're facing the holidays this year without someone that was a significant part of their life at one point. And it feels very different to eat Thanksgiving dinner or to deal with Christmas without this person there. They can't escape it. You know, there's other people in our church that, that deal with crisis every day. And they can't just turn on a television show and forget about it. And some of them are suffering alone because the rest of us are too busy with our lives and our petty concerns to really give them the love and the care that they need. And so God says that we need to weep with those who weep. Join them. Now, now I want to just emphasize here that He doesn't tell you that it's necessarily your job to fix all of their weeping. Right? Because that's, that's our natural tendency. Like, we, we don't like sorrow. We don't like people to be sad. So when someone is sad in front of us, our first thought is, well, how can I fix it? You know, what's the perfect thing I can say to make them all feel better? Or, you know, we, we crack a joke because we're not quite sure how to just weep with someone who's weeping. The worst is, is when we try and downplay someone's grief. Like, well, that's bad, but let me tell you what I'm going through. Because when you hear what I'm going through, your thing is not going to feel like much of a big deal at all. You know, we, we try and minimize, we try and downplay, we try and pass it away. You know, Job's friends didn't get much right, but they got it right in Job 2, verse 13, which says that they sat down with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him. For they saw that his grief was very great. Now, obviously, there does come a point where we need to speak truth into people's lives. We need to correct bad theology. We need to help people think what is true. But, but start by just entering someone's sorrow and sympathizing with it. And, and if you want some help to, to know how to do that well, I'd, I'd love to have a conversation with you. So, so in some, verse 15 is not complicated. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. But it is very unusual. But Christians should be unusual people. We, we need to love the way God loves us. And the church should be a family that truly shares life together. That, that we are excited with each other's joys and we sorrow when people are hurting. 
So, so love the body with otherworldly grace and humility. And then the third practical command that God gives is to walk humbly with all people. Walk humbly with all people. So, so verse 16 then says, Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Now, now this is another verse that like, is so basic that we might think I've graduated past this. I don't need to hear this. I know this. I, can, I get that. And yet the truth is, what, what God is commanding us here is again, so unnatural and so unusual. I mean, just think about how much bickering and complaining and fighting would, would just go poof if people would obey what God is saying here. You know, some of you maybe spent Thanksgiving Day with family and they're bickering and they're fighting and you're like, dude, grow up. The solution's right here. Get rid of your pride, get rid of your selfishness. But they don't. Because pride and self are deeply ingrained in, in, in every sinner. So we need this verse. And by God's grace, we can obey it. And I'd like to start at the end of the verse and, and work our way forward. And so first of all, Paul tells us at the end to think rightly about yourself. Think rightly about yourself. He says at the end of the verse, do not be wise in your, excuse me, in your own estimation. And then he says earlier, he says, do not be haughty or proud in mind. Now, I, I mentioned a couple weeks ago that Paul wrote the book of Romans from the city of Corinth. And I have to think that, that Paul's experiences at Corinth inspired some of, the, some of the instructions he gives here in Romans 12. Like, I wonder if he just returned from some meeting with some you know, absolute punk in the Corinthian church and he sat down and wrote Romans 12 and said, don't be like this guy. And, and, and so remember, you know, that, that, well, specifically, there were some in the Corinthian church who, who were totally wrapped up in themselves and, and they were specifically wrapped up in, in this mystical wisdom, which was no wisdom at all. You know, they, they were trying to find this, this higher knowledge, this higher understanding than what God had revealed in His Word. And, and, so, and they were so proud of, of the supposed discoveries that they made. And instead of being amazed at God, they were amazed at themselves. And they were so delusional, so caught up in, in, their, in, in their ways that, that they thought that they understood God they understood theology and they understood ministry better than the Apostle Paul. So it was that they thought it was their job to correct him and fix him. And we'll talk about that this evening. And it's ridiculous. But it's not unusual. You know, so, so God has given many of you in this room sharp minds. Great spiritual gifts. Good training in ministry. And, and every Christian should think hard, and have strong convictions. And God has gifted many of you to be leaders, to make a difference in people's lives. You have great gifts that God can use. But make sure that every gift that God has given you is wrapped in meekness. I think often of the testimony of Moses. Moses was a brilliant man. He, he, had some of the best tra- he had the best education of that day. He had all sorts of natural gifts and abilities. Obviously, I mean, and, and, he, and he knew God. Like, he spoke to God. 
He was the one that got to go up on Mount Sinai and receive the law. Like if anyone in Israel had a right to be proud, it was Moses. But Numbers 12, verse 3 says, Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all people who were on the face of the earth. So be like Moses. Now don't boast in, in your glory and your wisdom and despise others as a result. Be more amazed at God and less amazed at yourself. Rejoice in His grace, not in your greatness. And use your gifts to serve, not to glorify yourself. So God says, pursue the humility of Jesus. Don't think highly of yourself. Drive pride out of your soul. And then the next challenge He gives is pursue all people. Pursue all people. So so the middle of verse 16 says, do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. And once again, that challenge smells like something coming from Paul's experience at Corinth. Some of the people at Corinth were were so proud that, that they thought that they were above hanging out with some of the lower people supposedly in the church. You know, so, so again, 1 Corinthians 11 tells the story that, that when they would observe the Lord's Supper, the rich people would host, and, and the rich people would sit in one room and have a feast while the poor people were locked out in the other room. Because they thought they were above hanging out with these slaves and other maybe uneducated types of people. And it was wicked. Now, now I imagine we know better than to do something like that. We've read 1 Corinthians 11. But we have our ways. Of, of looking spiritual while keeping certain people at, at, at arm's length, right? Or, or maybe you're, you're not actively pushing anyone away from your life, but there are certain people that as long as they stay on the other side of the room, you're pretty happy about that. And you're not going to seek them out because you just really don't see them as someone that you really want to associate with or, or be friends with. But but Jesus said in Luke chapter 14, verses 12 through 14, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors. Otherwise, they may also invite you in return, and that will be your repayment. But when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed since they do not have the means to repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Now, now Jesus' point there is not that you can't have friends or that you can't invest in your friends. But but rather, He's saying, you know, don't pat yourself on the back for loving people who are easy to love. And that's what He said in Matthew chapter 5 as well. And sometimes, man, we think we're something for, for loving people who, who give us so much in return. No, rather, Jesus is calling you to practice genuine, sacrificial love. So, there is probably someone in this room who is outside your comfort zone. That you don't have any practical, uh, just easy connection to them, or, or, or there's not some natural interest in that person's life, and and, and you might feel like there's nothing this person can contribute to my life. And that's precisely who Jesus commands you to pursue. So pick out a handful of those types of people. 
You, you could probably come up with a list in your seat right now and, and find those people after church. Get to know them. Ask them how you can pray for them. Of course, now if anyone asks, you know, like, can I pray for you? are like, oh man, he doesn't like me. So, <laughs> don't make that conclusion, alright? But, but go after people. Get to know them. Love them well. Invest in them. And, and you'll probably be blessed a whole lot more than you expect. But even if you're not, even if it is an absolute one-way street and it is all giving and nothing in return, Jesus says you will be repaid at the resurrection. Christ sees. And He will make it all worth it. So, so pursue all people. And then, in light of that, the last challenge in verse 16 is to live in harmony. He begins verse 16 by saying, be of the same mind toward one another. Be of the same mind toward one another. Now, now Jesus there is not saying that literally we all think exactly the same thing about everything. Right? And we know that because in chapter 14, he's going to say it's okay for Christians to have differing convictions. No, rather... Considering the rest of the verse, Jesus is, is command, or Paul is commanding us here to, to share the same mind in the sense that we all have the same sacrificial, genuine love for each other. That, that we're not in it for ourselves. You know, we're, we're, not all, we're not running 300 different races because we're all going my way. You know, instead, we are, we are governed by love. And love and sacrificial care and the mission of Christ drives us together. Again, that's so basic, right? Live in harmony with each other. Get along. But it's not very natural either, is it? I mean, probably at some point in your marriage, you and your spouse have gotten stuck in a fight because neither of you refused or was willing to budge from your turf. And so for several hours, maybe several days, Maybe several weeks you are at odds because you refuse to budge off of what is ultimately something silly and, and unnecessary. You know, I mean, you can see that stupidity in your kids, right? Or in children, like, like just give up. You know, but they will guard their turf and fight for their ground. But we do it too. We do it too. So stop it. Love sacrificially. And make sure that you walk into this building every Sunday with the same spirit. That, that you are here to love, to give, to be a blessing. Now, how thick is your skin? Are you someone who is easily offended? Always hurt? You know, if you are, then, then you are focused on yourself, not on other people. Now choose love. Choose harmony. You don't get stuck in petty conflicts because love covers a multitude of sins. Now maybe you are critical of everyone and everything. You know, and so you want everything just the way you want it. So you, know, you don't like this song and you don't like you know, this sermon or you don't like this program. and you know, you just, you're, you're constantly finding reasons to complain and gripe. Because really, at the end of the day, it's all about me. And that's what's in your heart. You know, if the, if the whole world stinks, 
It's probably you that stinks, not the world. So, so, so learn to love graciously, to be sacrificial, to think like a servant. I think that the idea of, of harmony is such a helpful illustration here because you know, singing in unison is always easier than singing in parts, at least if you're not a super musical person. And in the same way, it's easier to live with people who are exactly like you, right? Think like you, act like you, do the same things as you. you know, but, but singing in harmony is harder but it is always, it is richer, it is deeper, it's a better sound. So, so don't be lazy and just chase what is easy. Love sacrificially. Embrace the, the sharpening effect and the, the God-glorifying power of harmony. You know, it's, it's such a wonderful blessing that, that we can have that kind of harmony in the church. Now, you, you don't have to, we, we don't have to come together and bicker and fight and complain. You know, by God's grace, you should be able to come to church every Sunday and you don't have to walk on eggshells and worry that you know, Cousin Fred's going to get mad at you about this or that. No, when we come here, we are with family. And when you come here, you are loved. And, and as well, you have endless opportunities to love people the way Jesus loves you. you know, and we have our hiccups, right? We have our conflicts. People get grouchy at each other. That's going to happen. But, but I'm thankful that, that God has given us, I believe, as a church, by the grace of God, a spirit that reflects this verse, these verses. But we can't ever take that for granted. Because pride and self very quickly take over our hearts if we are not careful to drive them out. So, so if we're going to obey this text, we, it's going to take constant maintenance. So check your heart. Walk in the grace of God. And by God's grace, treat everyone. Not the way the world says to treat them. Treat everyone with otherworldly grace and humility. Father, thank You for the love that You have shown to us in Jesus. It is a wonderful gift. Father, thank You as well for the grace that You give us to love one another. And Lord, please help us to love each other well. Help us to care for one another, to serve one another out of, out of genuine humility and grace and meekness. And God, I pray that You would convict us where we need conviction, encourage us where we need encouragement. And I pray that You would help us to live these verses. God, I pray that the world would see that we are your disciples by how we love each other according to what this passage commands. And Father, it'll be exciting to see how you work and how you will serve us all well and glorify your name as we obey. In Jesus' name, amen.